Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. Hello, and welcome to Castle Rock Critical. Welcome back. Uh, And if you're a first-time listener, hello. Today we're going to be covering the fourth episode of Castle Rock, titled The Box. Just a quick spoiler warning, we're going to be discussing everything from this episode and the previous three episodes of Castle Rock. And we're also going to be discussing uh, references to any Stephen King novels that are involved in this episode, as well as any theories we have. So just a quick spoiler warning there. Today, I'm joined by our friend in the Upside Down, our friend down in Australia, Gareth. Hello, mate. Hello, mate. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, bud. And uh, today we're joined by not a new member of the crew because she just uh, hasn't been involved in the Castle Rock Critical setup yet. But we're joined uh, by Lucy, one of our resident fan critical podcasters. How are you doing, Luce? Really well, thanks. Just give us your quick summary on what you're thinking about Castle Rock up to this point, because obviously everyone else has voiced their uh, highs and lows about the show and and how we all really actually enjoy it. Um, What have you been thinking, uh, watching sort of and catching up with us now? Yeah, so I've loved it. Watching this show in comparison to watching Westworld, which was the previous podcast we did. Yeah, you don't like Westworld, do you? It was like being on a, a mini break walking down a sun-dappled, cobbled street, yeah, relaxing with an Aperol spritz. That's how I found it in comparison to watching Westworld. Very relaxing, enjoyable experience. And that's interesting, considering it's such an unnerving, sort of horrific show. I know. Maybe that says more about you than it does about the show. But yeah, you're right. It is is quite refreshing to watch a show that has not exactly a linear storyline, but it's, it's something unfolding that's... and I trust that it will be resolved. Yes. And that's very good point. Very, very good point. So uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, episode four, The Box. Uh, and I thought it'd be a good time to mention the titles of the episodes. So we've had Severance, Habeas Corpus, and then we've had Local Colour. And this week we've got The Box and it's got obviously a lot of different uh, meanings in this episode. Mm. You've obviously, you know, Straight off the bat, you've got the the coffin in which Reverend Diva is being transported back to uh, Castle Rock in. Repatriated, yep. Yeah, which is, you know, don't touch graveyards. That's what they say. They say, yeah. don't, you know, don't disturb the dead. Don't desecrate. Who says that? Uh, Stephen King says that a lot, doesn't he, Gareth? Does he? Well, think of like most of it, well, most of his books, but a lot of his books, um, the most terrifying aspect is because it's been built on an Indian burial ground. Well, yeah, very good point. And, uh, you know, the box could also refer to the cell in which the kid is staying. It could also refer to, say, the security room in which we see Zed or Zalewski in a lot of this episode. So there's... Or the box that um, Henry finds or the... On, yeah. at the Desjardins. Yeah, very good point. Very good point. So there's a lot of different uh, meanings there. I'm going to come to Gareth first. 
what yeah. was you weren't you weren't with us for the last episode, episode three, but you were with us for episode one and two. What are your thoughts about episode four? Are you still seeing the show going on this upward trajectory? So, having listened to your podcast, obviously on uh, on episode three, I know that there was there was maybe a slight bit of dissenting voice coming through. Um, apart from with Emma, who loved episode three, and I kind of agreed with that. I reckon. Um, I reckon episode three took a slight step back in terms of the quality of the show and the consistency of the show. Uh, had a couple of, of amazing set pieces, but overall it was it was maybe a step back. And I think, unfortunately, I'm going to say this is probably a step in that same direction. After hearing John talk about how um, Molly makes him think of, of Charmed, I just can't get that out of my head. And he's absolutely ruined the character for me. That's so annoying that he did that, because the moment he said something about Charmed and, and the psychic ability, I was like, oh, that is annoying. Because I, I disagree with John on some of these things, but that, that was an annoying sort of reference that, yeah. that actually resonated with me. However, I love her character now, and I think in this episode she's used in the right manner. I think in this episode she's used to good effect. So Gaz, obviously we do a blueberry rating for everything that we've ever reviewed with Fan Critical. And the blueberry rating uh, system is thus to our new listeners. Um, it's a scale from zero to five, five being the strongest, zero being the weakest. Nothing has ever got a zero. Um, and you can't give any halves. So it's quite a harsh scale. It's quite a definitive scale. Gaz, what's your blueberry rating for this episode? Uh, I feel a little bit mean doing this, but this is this is what we refer to in the business as a cheesecake topper episode that's three three blueberries out oh, of nice. five well you, you know that's your prerogative mate if you think it's a three um i'm just going to jump in with my thoughts next i think that this uh was a return to form from the pilot i think this is the second best episode of the season i've got a couple reasons for that i think i think the tone um wasn't lost in episode three because I really enjoyed episode three, but it went for this sort of more dark humor sort of angle with the with Molly's sort of chaotic journey to get to her interview, and, and it was a very Molly centric episode. And I do really like the character of Molly, but I just feel that like this episode, obviously exploring a lot of the of Henry's character and a lot of his past, some elements of it were extremely uh, unsettling, unnerving, um, and I just think the ending of the show proved to me why. I'm just so invested because every single episode, something has happened that has shocked me. There has not been a moment in this show where it's rested on its laurels and it's just coasted by. And even with this episode, Gaz, I know you said it wasn't necessarily your favourite episode of the season. There's no denying that the sequence at the end of the episode is by far the most shocking thing that we've seen in the show to date um, and completely subverts our expectations about a certain character and yes. blows open the narrative in a way that I wasn't expecting. So for that reason alone I'm going to I'm going to give it I'm going to give it a 4. I think it's the second uh, strongest episode of uh, of the season. So I'm going to give it four four blueberries. Um the best episode for me was the pilot. I gave that a 5 because I think it did such a great job and did all the heavy lifting. But for me this is a 4. That ending blew me away. Sorry for the pun. Lucy, as a not a newcomer on the podcast, but as a, a newcomer newco- to Castle Rock, yeah, podcasting, yeah. Welcome back, Lucy. I'm excited to have you here. Oh, thanks, guys. Um, I've been away for eleven days of combat, no frostbite. Who nope. knows where I've been? Yeah, I don't. You know, unaccounted <laughs> for days, listeners. Unaccounted mm. for days. But Lucy, what did you think then? Um, I take both your points. Um, I agree with Gaz that it 
was a bit of a dip, but for me this was more of a bridging episode, I find. And I think every series needs that, the episode that kind of is just laying groundwork and there's not a lot of action. However, for me, the last sequence kind of boosted it up and I was honestly, I was so shocked because in the previous episode when um, Zaleski's talking about, I'm going to be, maybe I'll be a lawyer. I was like, dead, definitely dead. Like, he's going to die. Such but a shame. I, know, I was actually yeah. very upset. I didn't think it'd be like this. I thought he'd be killed in under different circumstances but to see him switch and do that and it kind of mimicked the imagery that he saw in the first episode he kind of repeated that yeah um obviously we're going to talk about that later but yeah. that for me i was watching it thinking this episode hasn't been like brilliant but that for me i like len said i was very shocked i didn't expect that i didn't see it coming um so uh i think i'm gonna give it a four because i did enjoy it and i think that that sequence for the shock value, but it wasn't done just for cheap effect, really boosted the Blueberry score for me. I'm not going to speak for Emma and John because they're not here. I think John would have given this a, a three. I think he would have echoed your thoughts, Gads. He's very hard man to please. I think Emma would have given it a five. I honestly <laughs> think that's the way she would have gone with this episode. <laughs> she's, I mean, she's turning into the hype man of the group. She's turning into the hype man. I honestly think this is a great episode. Um, and I know we can we're going to dive right into it now and go scene by scene so for anyone listening for the first time this is the way we do things we're going to run through the the episode scene by scene or most of the scenes scene by scene any most of the important scenes uh and then at the end we're going to have our own separate segment where we reference anything uh, any easter eggs to any stephen king material used in this episode or any references to any adaptations anything from the novels usually emma would do that she's not here this week she sent me her notes i've compiled those with my notes and added a few extra bits in so um yeah look forward to that so if we don't mention any references whilst the episode's going on don't worry it's going to be in king corner it's going to be awesome stick there around coming. stick around for that then can i just point out how Lucy has has nailed the pronunciation of Zalewski straight away. No I'm problems. Polish though, aren't I? Well, the only benefit of our boy Zed uh, passing <laughs> away in this episode is the fact that I won't have to be embarrassed trying to say his name every five minutes. Zalewski, yeah, I did it. I did it once and it was fine. <laughs> so let's let's crack on with the episode. Sorry for interrupting the podcast, guys, uh, but this is the advert section. Um, basically, first off, I want to start off by advertising ourselves. We are Castle Rock Critical, but we're part of a large podcast family that we've been creating over the last year or so. Um, if you have enjoyed this, please do subscribe to this podcast. But if you like anything like event movies or shows like Black Mirror, Stranger Things, Game of Thrones, then please do subscribe to Fan Critical, also on any podcast app or Spotify, or the host of Westworld. That's our Westworld podcast, which is a great and interesting show. And if you've been uh, watching that show, you definitely need a podcast to listen to with it because it's so insane so uh, the host of Westworld also on any podcast app but I thought it'd be interesting uh, to mention some of our some of our podcast friends uh, in the Castle Rock realm there's a couple of podcasts out there and uh, one that we like is called the Castle Rock Historical Society Uh, they're an unofficial companion podcast like us um, and they're run by Hannah Selector she's of undead airlock fame and Acadia Einstein of Strangeful Things Um, And they do kind of what we do. They explore all of the sort of mysteries and they come up with theories about what's going on with the show whilst also exploring all of the Stephen King references. And the interesting thing is that Acadia actually grew up in Maine. 
So he can really come at it from a perspective of someone who actually grew up in this in this small American state and who, you know, as Stephen King's books are all kind of set in and around there to an extent, it's a really interesting take on things. So once again, they are the Castle Rock Historical Society and they can be found wherever you find podcasts, like I mentioned before, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, all of that jazz. So do check them out. They're great. And that's it for the advertisement section. Um, Back to the podcast. The episode opens up with Henry lying in bed, um, having flashes, having um, sort of visions of what happened to him in those 11 days, those fateful 11 days that we uh, that are unaccounted for. And he has no recollection of. Quick flashes here. So, you know, I've watched it several times, as we all have. But I've watched it several times just to pick up on what's going on. He seems to be locked in a basement. There's a, there's a caged sort of fencing door. Someone approaches him in the dream and also seemingly in his room in like reality Mm. was there actually someone in that room great question i'm gonna say no there wasn't my first thought was is this kind of empathy um empathy bridge between uh, molly and um and henry is it maybe now a two-way bridge is there some sort of connection and he might be seeing her in strange situations or picking up on some of her vibes that was my thought yeah i like it yeah empathy bridge you heard it here first it's not on reddit you heard it here first from gareth evans down in australia melbourne lucy do you think there's anyone in that room or no i I actually thought of the word um the phrase empathy bridge as well while i was watching it so did you yeah maybe we have an empathy bridge we have an empathy bridge my god so after the title sequence we then get um clap hands by tom Waite playing great song by the way Boy Zalewski, Zed, as we call him, R.I.P. You can say his name now. I can, but I'm <laughs> going to stick with Zed because I like it. Um, he wanders through the prison and arrives at his, what seems to be his station, which is the security room. Mm. Seems that he's always there. What is up with, with this woman whose uh, shift he keeps taking? She annoys the crap out of me. If I had to deal with her every time I came into work, I, I can understand what Zalewski's doing at the end, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She is a dick like yeah i'm just about to start a shift sitting in front of some camera screens for like nine hours yeah Yeah, i'm not going to be in a delightful mood thank you yeah she she, by the end of the episode on that last sequence where she says like i can't remember what she says like some some little rhyme about smiling or something i was just like fuck you she is so annoying man yeah so the lyrics in the song are quite interesting. The first couple of lyrics are like, sane, sane, they're all insane. So I quite like that. quite like that. It's kind of implying that everyone in there, guards, prisoners, it's, just, it's an insane world, Lucy. They are all insane because they live in Castle Rock, a town that's rotten to the core, I say. Rotten to the core. Cursed. The next scene has a character that we haven't really touched on that much in the previous podcasts, mainly because he's that sort of stereotypical... Um, prick prick sort of assistant to the warden i'm going to call him the warden's number two we have him going to threaten the kid right so (laughs) he goes into the the cell of the kid 
and he says how he was a marine and that he used to f- to, to get information out of someone and this is a weird one and i thought jesus man i've not heard this before he fed the guy he was torturing his own molars mm. now <laughs> that's just weird isn't it i mean that's disgusting i i couldn't i couldn't get over that i was, I was sitting there thinking how does that even work so literally they apply him out and he just feeds them to him straight away, or I reckon he knocks them out. That's how I got it. Like he's beaten up, so his beaten teeth up. come out, and then you feed them his teeth back. Yeah, I can visualise it now. Good, good, good uh, description there. Yeah, Liz. I thought about it. I don't think it is that. I don't think. I think it's worse than that, to be honest. Because he, what he actually says is like they fed him his own teeth, and when they got to the molars, that's when they got his name. Jesus. So I think they were, I think they were pulling them out. Oh my god, it's absolutely brutal. Um, so that was interesting. I, I don't know whether to believe it or not because this guy doesn't seem the way he acted when the kid reacts in a yeah. minute didn't really seem that he'd seen a lot of conflict because you wouldn't do that. He's a weed. Yeah, he acted a bit like a weasel. So basically, he gives this spiel to the kid. The kid, obviously, at this point, we know is very unmoved by these situations. He's dealt with a neo-Nazi. He gave him every form of cancer. He killed him. He's not fussed by any of this, these threats. It's very interesting uh, what he says. I'm going to play it right now. He has a name. What? He has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of god so i've done a bit of digging around guys um and i was interested in that particular uh, proverb or 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 part of the bible because uh, like with the westworld podcast and uh, there's a lot of hidden meanings in a lot mm. of these religious quotes that go on so after doing a bit of digging around that's from the book of revelations 1913 and this is the the start of the quote which isn't actually referenced by the kid there he has eyes like blazing fire and many royal crowns on his head he has a name written on him that only he himself knows he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of god now that has several references in it um the actual we're going to come on to some of the references in king corner to do with some potential stephen king novels adaptations but for now we should note where that comes from and that is a passage that's referring to the four horsemen of the apocalypse Mm. um so you like that you like that gaz do you yeah i do like that that's very good they say about with the devil sorry as well like um the mark of the beast so the the idea of having his name upon him which only he knows. Yeah. That made, as soon as he said that, I was like, devil. Yep, and that ties nicely into the fact that this particular horseman that they're uh, referencing, one of the four horsemen, stands for war and or possibly the Antichrist. So, oh. quite disturbing. A.K.A. Lucifer. A.K.A. Interesting. The kid. No, I'm joking. I don't think... Hmm, it's, tough, it's a tough one with the kid, isn't it? Because they're obviously throwing these little bits of information out there and obviously they're not expecting people to go look up the bible but they've put that in there for a specific reason so does it say anything in the bible about him being either war and the antichrist or a creepy ass clown that lives in drains very good question gaz i might have to go back to the source text anything about 27 years and sequences of 27 years and being a clown that manifests fears secretly or a giant spider or alternate dimensional being or a that mummy a, di- a deity essentially is is what it is mm. um but yeah no so it's interesting there's a lot of theories floating around about the kid at the moment um 
And I think this one is trying to tell us, hey, he's the Antichrist, but I think he isn't. I think it's a bit of a hoodwink. But let's see. Um, the other reference we'll come on to in King Corner. So saving that for the, the special segment at the end. So stick around for that one. It'll blow your mind. I can't wait. Now we're moving on to uh, a classic family road trip. We have uh, Henry and his new makeshift dad, Alan Pangborn. <laughs> Pangers. <laughs> that must be such an awkward car journey. I mean, their conversations just so confrontational all the time. Yeah. Gaz, did you notice that the song playing in the car is 24 Hours from Tulsa? Uh, I didn't notice. I didn't notice that. Tulsa. I wondered what the song would be. Um, do you want to explain the relevance, though? Well, the song 24 Hours from Tulsa is, is obviously what Henry referred to as his first memory when he was discussing uh, that to his criminal defendant who he, he, who he saw get executed, the woman. He mm. She said, oh, what's your first memory? And, and he had those flashes to his childhood. So I'm thinking that obviously 24 Hours from Tulsa was playing in the car when Pangborn put him in the car yeah, after rescuing was, yeah. him. Yeah, so, so that's... For him, very unsettling. That's why he says, is there anything else that we can play in this car, please? Any other song other than the song that reminds <laughs> me of Why have you trauma? been playing this song for 27 years? Get a <laughs> Just, new song, Pangers. Yeah. So that was a very interesting little uh, touch. They're going to the new graveyard where Reverend Matthew Deaver was moved after the church was bought out or something. So Henry's enraged by this. He wants mm. to go um, make sure his father is placed back with his congregation where he belongs. Yes which is a completely legitimate thing that he should want to happen. However, I'm of the opinion that do not mess with graves. It's already been messed with once. Mm. I don't think it's a good idea. Don't wake something up. You don't want to be woken. Henry and Pangborn, we're getting this interesting, ever-evolving relationship between them. Because at times during this conversation, they seem quite normal and not so standoffish. And we know that Pangborn is working for what he believes to be a higher power at this point because of Lacey's letter and everything that's been written to him. Um, Henry's, you know, none the wiser of this. Henry just doesn't like Pangborn because of the situation with his mother, that he's sleeping with his mother and sort of signing documents for her. Yeah. Henry admits that he wants to move his mother to Houston, closer to him, to which Alan thinks is just a terrible idea and he says he's going to marry her. I mean, Lucy, what do you what do you think about Pangborn? I mean, coming at this from someone who's, who we haven't spoken to about it for three episodes, mm. do you like Pangborn? Do you like the character? Yeah, so I don't see him as a villain. Um, I see him as being like opposed to Henry, but I don't necessarily think that means he's bad. Um, something about Pangborn, which I don't know if you know, because um, he first comes into Stephen King Law in The Dark Half, which is a, a book... Yeah. I don't know if you've heard of it, but yeah, yeah. it's basically when Stephen King was revealed to also be writing under the alias of Richard Bachman, he wrote about an author with an alter ego that he sort of buries, but he comes alive, essentially. But that's where um, Pangborn first comes from. But he's he loses his wife and youngest child in a car crash in that book. Well, there you go. So so it... that I wonder if that's going to come into it at any point. Like, there's a, ver- a, a real air of sadness and sort of almost resignation to Pangborn, I think. And I wonder whether or not part of him wanting to, like, rescue Henry came from losing his own child i don't know yeah and that's very interesting thanks for that loose it's a good piece of information because as we've said in previous um episodes that understanding the stephen king canon and 
Pangborn's relationship with Castle Rock and his mm. history is important to understanding him now in yeah, the present definitely. day because of the things that he's seen and the things that he's been through. Of course, he's going to be siding on the side of this town is supernatural, it is cursed. He's seen horrific things. Yeah. And another reason why he obviously went out there to help Henry was very heavily insinuated by Henry in this episode is the fact that his relationship with his mother yeah. was potentially an you know an affair between Pangborn and his mother whilst uh, the Rev was the, still around. The Rev was still around. But I think the Rev is not a good guy. Well, and that's why Henry potentially no. topped him off. And think... that's interesting. Gaz, what do you think about the Rev? Do you think he's a good guy? No, I don't at all. First of all, um, he's, he's a Rev. Like, no offence to any reverends that might be listening. So chances are... Like, chances increase that you're not going to be a good guy, unfortunately. Um, secondly, we get all these, we get a lot of hints. We get a lot of hints that um, the Rev isn't a good guy. We see how he's talking to young Henry outside the house. We see Molly, young Molly's reactions to him. She obviously isn't a fan. Um, the only reason that Henry, I think, Henry doesn't, doesn't have, uh, doesn't hold on to these, these angry feelings towards the Rev um, Matthew Diva is because he doesn't remember. He doesn't remember anything before the Reverend died. So he doesn't know. He doesn't know what happened. What he was like before that, and he's probably sort of just trying to piece together some sort of father-son relationship yeah. that he doesn't have any memories of. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe he's trying to make it seem like he he's a loving son. Yeah. Um. Obviously. We'll come on to it later with Henry did it and all this sort of connotations that are said. But it's interesting that maybe he's trying to make up for something that he just can't remember and, and trying to be the son that he always felt he should be. Yeah. Whereas the reason he was rebelling against his father might be deeper rooted. There might be something going on there that we just don't know yet. Obviously, Molly knows, like you said. So that is very interesting. And and the, the relationship between Henry and Reverend Diva although we're going to see it in little snippets throughout the season and, and we're already getting some, um, I think that's going to be the integral sort of defining relationship mm. of the season because that's what we just can't account for at this stage, whereas we can sort of account for other things. But I think I think the, the longer the season goes on, when we start seeing those, why their relationship was so strained, potentially for very sinister reasons, potentially mm. knowing, you know, Stephen King stuff. and, and His no views on religion are very... Yeah, interesting. Disapproving, yeah. you could say. But I also think with Molly, she must know what he did to Henry and yeah. that's why she killed him. Yeah, I mean, she must that's have had a motive. She, 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 she can see what he was like and knew, so she took it upon herself to do that. Can I add a speculative theory here you that may? I thought yes. about whilst watching the last episode? I had a thought, this might not make sense, but what if when we see Molly killing Matthew, what if that is actually just her, how she saw it because she's so empathetic Yeah. and actually it was Henry yeah. doing it and that's why he puts I on did the, think that. or that's why she puts on the jumper because Very possible. it's his, yeah. So we'll She's see like, like reviewing we'll see what happened. Again. Yeah, I like that, Gaz. That's also a very good uh, twist that could be revealed. Um, it, you know, whether it's Molly or Henry at this stage, I think they must have had, they had a, a, reason. A, a reason. Also think, sorry, the Rev is very interesting. Part of me thinks that he might have something to do with the box and the kid 
and at the Desjardins household later on. No, the kid, the the oh, one. Right. So he maybe he was the word of God that told um, Lacey to do what he did, or something. I just think they're they're linked in some way. Yeah, very possible. I mean. I just can't wait to see what's going to be revealed because, as I said, every episode, something shocking gets revealed. Mm. So I think we should move on. We've got a lot to talk through. So Henry, uh, after his uh, lovely little family road trip with his new sort of father-in-law, Pangborn, um, goes uh, to meet with Molly at our favourite bar, The Mellow Tiger. We've referenced it in previous King Corners, very famous within uh, novels um, of Stephen King, like Needful Things, mm-hmm. um, for example. Um, and they're discussing the kidnapping of the kids, and that relates to then the kidnapping of Henry and sort of brings up a couple of questions for Henry. He starts actually questioning, and because of these visions that he's been having, what has been going on those 11 days? Obviously, he's tried to like avoid it for his whole life, yeah. moving away as far as he can and just not even thinking about it. But now he's back there. He's having to think about what happened to me those 11 days. Interestingly, they're going to have an interesting conversation about, about Molly revealing that she actually killed Reverend Diva, it seems. I mean, this is, this is probably what I'm talking about when I say it's all, this episode's a little bit clunky. Like, this conversation just annoyed me. First of all... They're there and talking about talking about the kid. She's like, "Oh, do you reckon you care about him because it's because you got kidnapped?" I'm like, no. Like, he he's a lawyer and he got called up. Like, uh, stupid, stupid thing to say. And then and then she's about to go. Oh, um. Also, just by the way, um. You know the the thing about your your dad dying and everybody thinking it was you. Um, that was actually me who did it. Um, I just thought I'd let you know at this point for some reason in a pub. So there you go. Again, not going to happen. That conversation is not going to happen. But she's a bit strange, isn't she? So she's not necessarily a normal person that would speak yeah. normally. I do agree with Lucy on that. I do agree with Gaz on the fact that I feel like it was. she didn't need to say that because then why didn't she tell him later on in the episode when he literally comes to her in a private secluded space and says, maybe I did it. Like, so then if she was going to tell him at the bar when he had no inkling of it, she would have said it to him in private. Um, But I I agree with you on that completely, Gaz. But um, Zalewski, Dennis interrupts. He, you know, he seems more and more invested in sort of the law process. Like, you know, he wants to do the right thing. And and he is arguably the one character we've followed throughout this whole season so far who is the moral backbone of the show mm. in terms of the fact that he does the right thing. You know, he comes up and he's, he's trying to give evidence. And Henry's like, look, don't worry about it. It's not there's no jury it's just a judge. We're going to go through the process. You can't be seen with me. And then he says something very interesting. He says this. You don't know what it's like hearing those doors lock behind you. I didn't even see it until I found that fucking tank, but I'm a... I'm a prisoner in there, too. No, they always say that Casserock has some kind of luck. Not really luck, though, is it? Bad shit happens here because bad people know they're safe here. How many times will one fucking town look the other way? So that's an interesting uh, line from from Zalewski there. And Gaz, it's something that I said a couple of weeks ago that maybe this place is just bad because bad people are there. Yeah, well, it's that it's that uh, that old question, isn't it? Like, 
um, is it fate or is it decisions that lead to things happening? And um, where, where's the line? And sometimes you've got to take take responsibility for your own fate, I suppose, rather than just putting it off on some kind of higher being. Yes. Um, perhaps it's it's Castle Rock's own doing. It's the people of Castle Rock who have led to all this nonsense happening because they haven't they haven't cleaned it up. Yeah. yeah. And they are fundamentally bad people. A lot of them are bad people and, and I think it, that's the thing with Stephen King novels in general. Um and I think we've touched on this before in like the Stranger Things podcast we did, that none of his books, the horror doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's not, oh my God, there's a shape shifting entity that feeds off fear that's killing kids. There's horror in the everyday. So yeah. the banality of evil in every single book. Yeah. There are very awful parents. There are bullies. There's just disgusting things happening. Yes. And it's you could watch this show and you could say, okay, um, Lacey is a religious nut and he kidnapped a child and he put the child underground. There could be no supernatural involvement and that would still be horrifying. And that's why, where I think Stephen King really sort of stands out because the horror is not confined to the supernatural and this whole show it could just be well people are just awful exactly it's not enough yeah. no one's the devil yeah and that's what yeah. we sort of and that's a very good point lucy thank you for the, the you know that's a very, i think that's a really good point and i think mm. it's something we potentially referenced in an earlier episode not with the the normality of the evil within the king novels but i was questioning the the level of supernatural so um Zalewski's a bit you know He's get, we're getting senses throughout this episode and especially towards the end that he's very disenfranchised with his job at mm. Shawshank <laughs> Prison. I mean, understandably, that place seems like the worst place to work in oh the world. God. How bad does it seem? $9 an hour as well. Is that oh, what he's on? Yeah, he said that, isn't it? $9 an hour. No, Jesus, man. God. And he's about to have a kid. And oh, like, I'm actually really sad. Yeah, I know. I can't even talk about it. <laughs> So we see him going through the prison and seeing all of these mini atrocities that are going on by the guards against uh, the prisoners. You know, it's kind of interesting that, that the show is approaching the prison in such a way that... And, and the same that the Shawshank did in a way, which is, we you know, we resonate more with the prisoners to an extent than yeah. we do with the guards. Fascinating. Um, so I kind of like the fact that they're still exploring that because it's very interesting. Obviously, there's a lot of bad people within this prison, a lot of bad prisoners, but the guards just seem horrendous. Mm. Um, and Zed is obviously feeling that way. He stops and he speaks to the kid. Um, and, you know, he says, don't worry about it. I'm going to testify. We're both getting out the, the fuck out of this place. Don't you worry about it, mate. And, they, and he tries to make him fist bump. Um, was anyone else concerned that when he went to give the fist bump, there was a bit of eerie music that kicked in? And because of the thing that had happened to the neo-Nazi, um, I was worried that when he touched him, something bad might happen to Zed. It did. Well, yeah, I think I think that was the implication that maybe it did. Because the, the bump happens and then there is like a, there's a, a shift straight away in the music. And then it cuts to him sort of walking into his into his office, and he's he, he's sort of he was almost stumbling a little bit, and I was like, oh god, he's caught all the cancers, um, <laughs> all of them, but got them all. Um, but he didn't, and I was like, oh, okay. But I think the implication. But again, this this comes back to what Lucy was saying and what we were saying a moment ago. But the implication is that perhaps that contact is what led to him fully losing his mind. Mm. Um, but then there is also the argument that it, 
it didn't. That's that's just a red herring, um, and his his mind was being lost at that point anyway. He goes into his security room, and this was this was creepy. And I think the show is excelled in these vignetted vignetted moments that really highlight the sort of unnerving nature of a human psychology and b just the viewer psychology of watching these sorts of things. Mm. So he draws um, smiley faces on all of the security cameras. And we've already referenced in previous episodes how creepy the security camera footage is anyway. Yeah. To add this yeah. sort of, uh, I don't know, mocking, psychologically twisted element to it, I thought was just a really creepy touch. And one of creepy. the most unnerving unnerving things that I've seen in the show um, well, imagine imagine being the next person on the shift, Jesus, and, like walking in to see that. You'd be like, "What? What the fuck is going on?" It was on almost here? like he was marking out um, where to go. It's kind That's of what I thought. Yeah, it's kind of as well. And this is just coming to me now as we record. Um, just thinking about like Stephen King and references, and and I'm not going to put this in King Corner because I've just literally thought about it now. But it's kind of like you know T- Jack Torrance's character in The Shining. You know, all work and no play makes mm. Jack a dull boy. Mm it's that sort of defiant writing that sort of defiant you know he's clearly bored and he hates watching these guards you know be horrible to everyone so he just draws this smiley face over and over again on these screens i kind of don't know just just floating in my head right now but i kind of see that as a link moving on to henry back to henry and this is quite a henry centric episode and it sort of develops quite slowly for henry in this episode but we, we we start to get detective henry as i like to call him he's uh rummaging through some old newspaper clippings and he sees a few things from the past and he stops on some articles. I have paused the episode several times and listed the articles that he's seen and any information relevant in the articles. So here we go. Dedication. Um, yes, it took me a while. Um, the first is titled Nightmare on Christmas, The Fire at Shawshank. Okay, so pretty that's, old. A, that's a bad headline. It though. Is, like, nightmare isn't it? before Christmas, but nightmare on Christmas. Like, yeah. That's not a saying. Yeah, it's bad from them. But um, so it's dated 1987, and that is, of course, when we know that the fire at Shawshank happened, which is why Block F, which is where the kid was discovered, was, you know, shut down ever since then. A um, couple of interesting things to note with the article. Who do you think was the first person on the scene? Pangers. Oh, Pangborn. Yeah, Sheriff Pangborn was the first person on the scene. Interestingly, there was a culprit. He was put in solitary confinement. However, his identity was never released. Hmm. Oh, my. So that's quite interesting. It, it also mentioned that uh, Reverend Matthew Deaver went down and led like prayer group and all that sort of stuff. So bit of mystery there. Um, he then sees articles about his disappearance. Nothing new to add there. It's all pretty much what we know already. Um, and then there's an article on the Desjardins family. Uh, and how they were suspects. And interestingly, the Desjardins family is in several Castle Rock stories. Mm. Um, you've got to say, there's something, there's something about a French, a French name that makes people seem creepier. <laughs> what do you mean? I can't get... Well, no, I mean, right, I'll tell you what, and I, I was going to come to this a little bit later, um, but I'll, I'll bring it up now. There's the same thing in True Detective, and there's a bit of this episode that reminded me a lot of true detective Gareth, in terms could you, of could you stop stealing my notes please <laughs> oh, sorry mate there you go look we've got an empathy bridge as well so he obviously he he goes to ask his his mum a little bit about the Desjardins and unfortunately is unable to get any information from her because she has something else that she wants to talk about that's a little bit more important yeah you're right Gareth she's 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 fuming 
because uh, she's yeah. found out that Henry's trying to move her to Houston, um, which for her is she she just wants to live at home, you know, and gut fish because <laughs> that seems to be what she likes to do. She but like, why yeah. is she? Why is he trying to get sort of? information about his past from her when she's got dementia like well, that's not the best source i tell you what that is interesting though as a concept because she might have very selective memory and might remember certain yeah. things that he doesn't and i i kind of like the idea of playing upon that um the idea of someone with a very faulty memory actually having the most relevant parts of yeah. information about their past Having clarity on yeah. certain aspects exactly i think that could be really interesting i kind of think with henry like you've just come back to town like, think of what you like about Pangborn, but he's actually been there for his mum. Yes, yeah, true. Then he's like, oh, you're in my house. He's like, right, well, your mum's ill and I've looked after her since you've been away. So do you want to jog on? Yeah, exactly. Stop being a dick, yeah. Henry. A bit, but then again, yeah. Pangborn, stop being a dick. They're both being dicks. Just grow up, guys. Yeah. Going back to John's favourite character, Crazy Molly, as I call her. Um, I really like Molly. I like Molly. And I think this episode, she's really good. Um, and the sequence that I really like with her is her doing her everyday job trying to sell That's a so house. so funny. I found the scene really funny. It is hilarious. The basic premise is Dale Lacey dead, as we know, decapitated himself with a uh, car and a noose. Um, has to sell the house. Obviously, tricky sell. Um, you know, And we've seen from Dale Lacey's monologue in, in episode two that basically a lot of people have died in his house. This isn't... This isn't just like one-off sort of situation. I know Dale Lacey didn't die in the house, but he died. You know what I mean? It's weird having these people die yeah. from weird circumstances in the same house. So this is kind of like a murder house. As she does the walkthrough of the house, she's taking down like, oh, condolences. She's taking down, oh, uh, or hiding the ashes, the cremains, and putting them in the freezer. So they sit down and she reveals, look, he didn't die in the house. So that's fine. And they're quite fascinated. They seem quite fascinated or taken aback by the area. Like he even makes a note of the painting. Isn't that Castle Lake? I mean, how does he know that? Like he's just moved to the area. Like he's just come and had a look at the area. So he seems like completely on board with it, to be honest with you. He's a weird guy. He's he glad is his a... mum's dead. Yeah, he's a weird guy. Maybe we'll see more of them as the season goes on. There's another interesting line here um, from Molly, which we're going to come on to in King Corner. But she says, don't worry about it. A serial strangler died in my house. Mm. Uh, once again, King Corner. Ding, ding, ding. That's a pretty cool one, to be fair. Yeah, I went. <sighs> Let's talk about this guy for a moment. Because um, if there was a best line of the week, it, it, you know, as much as I didn't love this scene as a whole, there was a cracking line in here where his wife says, oh, yeah, well, he, uh, he, he teaches history. And he says, or as I like to say, History teaches me. Jesus, mm. mate. I, I was fuming. I've watched the episode twice now. Every... And then she says, <laughs> yeah, he's fond of saying that. He's always saying that. <laughs> She's like, he says it a lot. That's why I'm moving here so that I will die. <laughs> I don't want to be with this man anymore. <laughs> there is there is this thing, I think, that's coming up quite a lot, which is um, a lot of people in Castle Rock or that come to Castle Rock have this morbid fascination, um, have an intrigue with, with death and creepiness and murder and... Um, mystery. We all do, don't we? I mean, I listen to a lot of true crime pro- podcasts and watch a lot of documentaries, so maybe I'd move somewhere like that to a murder house. Yeah, but would you would you move to a murder house, or would you like to read about it or visit it? Yeah, no, you wouldn't necessarily want to move to it. Could I keep um, the art? Whereas, then maybe I would. <laughs> yeah, give her the <laughs> art. She'll move to Lake, isn't it? 
so Henry, on his detective mission, um, goes to confront any remaining Desjardins that he can find. He goes to a very scary place, um, run-down house, middle of nowhere. Um, it kind of reminds me, <laughs> like the latest Resident Evil game, Gareth, I don't think you might have played it, but you're exploring the Baker house, it's scary, it's a run-down well, house, there's no escape, and there's weird backwards people in there. Don't know if I can say backwards, but I'm going to say backwards. Or it reminds me of True Detective. It is. It's it's totally True Detective. It um, taps into the like the desolation um, theme of True Detective, and that kind of um, like urban decay kind of thing that is a, a huge recurrent theme throughout True Detective. Um, the this the 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 shot of the the, the like the image of the piano yeah. through the rotted floor is is amazing. I I absolutely loved that. This was this was a really cool scene. I I really liked it and yeah. um it was just it was unsettling. I would say yeah uh, the whole time. And he finds obviously the the sort of outhouse as I'm calling it or the sort of prison outhouse box. the box title of the episode. The um he finds that in the back garden and he sees a bowl in it with a spoon in it and some really rancid mouldy food so clearly someone's been kept here before mm. maybe the kid maybe yeah. the kid was kept here before or Lacey found him Cujo good old Cujo maybe. why does he need a spoon because Cujo is an advanced <laughs> rabid dog it uses got opposable thumb it uses implements alright you've obviously never seen Cujo too, have you yeah yeah <laughs> the thumbening the th- <laughs> thumbening <laughs> that sounds horrendous I don't even know what that means no so uh, a Desjardins does turn up. Joseph, Joseph Desjardins turns up. He's looking for Vince Desjardins, but uh, turns out that Vince never lived there and it was only ever Joseph who lived there. Now, this is a weird thing. He's got a little barbershop out in the middle of nowhere. I'm, <laughs> who are his customers? I know he's trying to make it sound like black people go out there to get their hair cut or something, but this is mental. He has Henry's case file. Now, that's weird. He's got Henry's case file. The police don't have Henry's case file, but he has it. And he says they're only guilty of ins- of insurance fraud. That's it. And the way he's speaking and the way he's acting in this scene, uh, if I was Henry, I'd just get out of there right now. I know. No one ever gets out. Yeah. He, he just, he, he's been terrifying because he starts off quite normal, like, oh, yeah, I'll cut your hair. And then when he's upstairs in a room with him, he's just going a bit mental. Don't you think, though, he starts going a bit mental... Uh, as soon as he finds out it's it's Henry, yeah, like he's like you're the diva boy, and then he start he sort of does a little jig, like a slow motion jig, and this creepy smile appears on his face, and I was like, what is happening here? And then he's like, come with me, and he walks a little bit faster than you expect him to walk because he's quite an old guy, um, so he's obviously really excited, but that means that he gets around the corners of corridors quicker than oh, we Jesus. do following Henry. So, you know, he goes around the co- corner and we're like, oh shit, what's he going to do around this corner? And I think I think it's 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 really well made this um sequence. But um but it, it seems to me like maybe he is actually perfectly innocent. He's just creepy. He's just creepy. And there's a bit of history about him which we're going to come on to in King Corner which really um sort of give a bit of context to his character as well. Um well, but, he says with the newspaper cuttings that he kept them because he wanted to see what the papers said about him. Yeah, and that's so, fair. Like that's weird, but I think you, that could be excusable. It could be excusable, especially when we learn a bit more about his past later mm-hmm. on. Um, so Henry, like, 
does get out of there, thank God, somehow. I don't know, you know, just weird. Um, he confronts Alan, uh, Alan Pangborn, uh, about the Desjardins and, and not finding him sooner. You did a search of his house. Just you, no forensic team, no dogs. I'm sure you can see where I'm going, Alan. No, I'm not sure I can. Guess I'm trying to figure out why you didn't do your fucking job. Right. Or we could just cut the shit. Because I'm getting pretty goddamn tired of it. What the fuck are you talking about? I know, Henry. I've always known. He told me. Who? Day before he died. Right up there in that room. My father? He was half dead, but still awake. Had that fucking tube down his throat, so he wrote it out for me. On a goddamn bank slip. All capital letters. Henry did it. What? Just the two of us in that room. Next morning, the good reverend is dead. Of course, I had to look like I was doing my fucking job. Gin up a theory or two. Keep the DA guessing. Make sure he didn't get the balls to charge with everybody looking at you the way they did. He knows equivocally henry did it in capital letters right so just to make a point capital letters henry did it this is an interesting piece of information because obviously it's reverend diva referring to the initial injury that he received out at castle lake Mm. because you know he couldn't have told him henry did it from beyond the grave so this is talking about how he got injured in the first place do we believe this piece of information i for one do believe this piece of information i think henry probably did injure reverend diva in the first instance because of something that is very sinister that we don't know about yet i think that he did it but he deserved it he had it coming he had it coming he had it coming yeah so i think because otherwise how can we really root for henry if he truly did sort of try to murder a kindly deacon yeah there's a few options here i reckon like there's there's a lot of possibilities. A, it could be it could even be that Pangborn's lying. I don't think so, but there's there's a possibility. Um, B, it could be that um, that Matthew Diva um, was lying for some reason. C, it could be that it, that that yes Henry did it, but was maybe being controlled by something or maybe had a a case of the. Zalewski's and went a bit mental because of something Um, or it could even be that maybe like somebody like like Molly did it control because you know she she was there in the woods with him effectively yeah um, at least on a a mental level Um, there's a lot of possibilities Henry did it in some capacity in the the first injury of 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 the Rev the Rev Matthew Deeve Um, but who knows the the motivations behind said said uh, crime? Yeah, he then goes to Molly's um, and confesses, maybe I did it. So referring back to your earlier criticism, Gareth, of the scene in the bar and what we've referenced already, if someone's coming to you seriously doubting their own character, like literally their soul, doubting it, and you were going to just tell him over a pint of beer in the restaurant, why wouldn't you tell him here? Why? Madness. Well, is it because she wanted it's, to sleep with him? Potentially. Yes. 
she wanted to have a crack at that first, and yeah. but then she could have said something in the morning. Yeah, it, it sort of reminds me of, um, you know, like like those old, like Wiley e. Coyote cartoons. Right? <laughs> yeah, he, he comes up with some elaborate plan, and um, you know, it might be, oh yeah, I'm gonna drop this bomb on the Roadrunner, and Me. he drops a bomb, and then it doesn't go off when it's supposed to, so it goes and inspects it, and then it explodes, and he's like, oh man. Then he goes, right, I'd better come up with a totally brand new plan. He could just try the bomb thing again, because the chances of getting a dodgy bomb twice in a row are unlikely. Yeah. This is sort of the same thing. She was about to say it, and then Zalewski turns up and goes and interrupts. And then she goes, hmm, okay, well, maybe I'd better rethink this whole plan. How am I going to tell him? Just tell him later when Zalewski's not around. Bake him a cake, says... I killed your father <laughs> on top. That's a new method. I like it. Um, and then so, drop a bomb on him. So interesting question. Uh, Lucy, I'm going to come to a girl's perspective on this. Um, if They slept together, right? Yes. Uh, we, we, right. Well, so, I, I assume they did. So, uh, Well, hold on. No cigarettes seen anywhere. That's so, a good point. Ooh. Good According point. to John but, um, McCann logic. Shorthand. Basing on what we said about uh, Molly being empathet- an empathetic sort of psychic character, mm. and last week we had an interesting conversation about um, when she referred to uh, her feeling Henry, you know, wanking and it being like fireworks, um, <laughs> which me and John equivocally said, I don't know what she's on about. Um, well, he felt like fireworks to her. Well, maybe. So what I'm saying is... Does it feel like fireworks? Does. Is she getting the best of both worlds here? She must be having the best orgasms of I all reckon, time. I reckon, yeah. It's like in um, Black Mirror when they have that thing and it like you can feel what the other person's feeling. Yeah, the, implant the pain thing. receptors. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I reckon, yeah. But then if that's the case, why isn't she just like constantly just banging people? Good point. Very like good point. Anyone. <laughs> like that weird kid that maybe sells a meth. Good point again. Mm. I mean, maybe it's too much. Yeah, maybe, maybe it is too um, much. It's, I, I, I cannot comprehend such emotional mm. uh, feelings. So moving on away from um, orgasms. <laughs> so we come to uh, the end scene of the episode, which is easily, I think, up there as one of the best scenes that the show has ever done mm. up to this point. Mm. Now Henry sends him a message, and the message says that I'm not. I'm not going to stay around. I can't stay around in this town anymore because obviously he's been beaten down over this episode. We've seen him get knocked, question his character, question his soul, question his childhood. Um, And he leaves a voicemail saying that he's going to accept the settlement deal and that he's going to leave town. And he's really sorry because he knows he's invested in it. Um, Zaleski listens to this and there's quite an abrupt cut in the music and it you know at this point I was like he's just going to top himself I, I, I genuinely thought he was going to kill himself I did not foresee what was about to happen I was alright for a while I could smile We know his disposition against the guards and the way they've been treating people and prisoners. 
Um, but for him just to go rogue in this scene and literally reenact the vision that he was given in the pilot, which is a very important point to make. All of those guards lying on the floor dead look pretty similar or exact to the vision that he received. Yeah. Um, his great Premonition, maybe. Premonition, greatest fear manifesting itself, other influences at play here potentially. But to see that happen and to see Zalewski die mm. at the end of this episode, our boy, our boy Zalewski, we love him. I did wonder whether... Because I, I thought that the fist bump was the moment that he caught madness or something yeah. you know, from from the kid. Potentially, but, yeah. But um, it is an interesting interesting note that he pretty much reenacts what he sees in, in episode one. Yeah. And yes. <clears throat> so therefore, was it was it in play before that? Yeah. Like, was, was it always going to happen? Destined to happen. Yeah. It was inevitable, though, that he... Um, that this was effectively his suicide, yeah. wasn't it? Mm. And you knew that at the end of this scene, it was also going to be the end of Zalewski. Yeah. Um, I thought when we saw, like, he obviously got his little marker pen out again. I thought, <laughs> I thought he was going to draw sad faces. Yeah, I lived, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, to- totally sorry. on you with that. I was, I was, I was definitely thinking that's what he's going to do. And then I thought he was going to top himself, but turns out much worse. Much worse. I mean, the thing is. The thing that's so interesting about this sequence, Lucy, and coming at it from a, as a one of the more red members of the group mm-hmm. of Stephen King, um, is the fact that this incident alone would warrant like a Stephen King short story, like the the security guard's gone a bit mad and yeah. questioning, you know, the the sort of evil nature of it. It's so interesting that it's part of this bigger story, and I just think it's so interesting the way they're playing with these little microcosmed stories of tragedy and weaving it aggressions yeah and weaving it into this big narrative but again what you could say about this sequence and the actions that take place is that you could remove the supernatural again because yeah, he's had a phone call and he said yeah you know like your escape route from this and you're a chance to do something good no you're not doing it so yeah see ya you're, you're like stuck in this life of drudgery with your pregnant wife and your nine pound nine dollars an hour yeah and that would be enough potentially to make him snap without any influence from the kid yeah exactly and and that's what we're questioning we're questioning the supernatural ability i'm just sad that we've lost i'm sad uh, i was the, shocked the moral the most good moral the most morally good character in the show i mean it's, there's no question about it this guy I mean, Henry, we've still got question marks over his past. We know that Mo- Molly's killed someone, as far as we can see, unless mm. it was Henry and, you know, all this sort of stuff, or she's complicit in murder. Um, so even the characters that we're kind of rooting for have dark pasts. And this was a guy who literally, from what we'd seen, ha- was a clean guy who was mm. just trying to make he a break. He's too good for this town. He's too good he for this town, and that's, and that's why he didn't, didn't last. And now, unfortunately, <sighs> he will go down as just another story in the town of Castle Rock in the history of Castle Rock and that for me that for me is the most depressing thing about it that he is just going to be you know another strangler another the the rabid dog another you know another footnote on this town and and that is a shame Um, so rest in peace uh, Zalewski Dennis Zalewski we adored you Um, you were our boy for four episodes night sweet prince Good night, sweet Shine prince. Shine on, you crazy diamond. But now it's time to move on to the ever-growing segment and the ever-popular segment of King Corner. I'm innocent, Red. Just like everybody else here. The house is burning. Hi, Georgie. I'm afraid I have a tendency to turn up the heat. 
Red rum. Red rum. So welcome back to King Corner. Unfortunately, you're right, I am not Emma. She is not here this week, but luckily with Lucy stepping in as a bit more of a, of a knowledgeable um, book geek, as we call them, only joking, um, and me stepping in with some of my book knowledge and adaptation knowledge, and Gareth sitting there being useless as usual, I think we've got the bases covered. So um, let's start off with a new character who was introduced this week, Vince Desjardins. Now, very interestingly, the Desjardins are in a lot of uh, Castle Rock stories in one way, shape, form or another. Vince Desjardins, spelt with an S at the end, because there's another character which we'll come on to with a Desjardins in another in another Stephen King book. Um, he is a character in the in Stephen King's The Body. Uh, so mm. the Stand By Me film, you know, The Body. He is one of the bullies. He's one of the members of uh, the Greasers gang, rung by Ace Merrill, who was played by Keith Sutherland mm. in, the, uh, in the film. Pack of pricks. Yeah, yeah. Pa- pack of pricks. Um, so he's got a bit of history in this town, and The Body was referenced in episode two of this season so we know he's been in and around the area and he wasn't necessarily the nicest of kids Horrid. um he was he was not a nice nice youth as we would say um there's an interestingly uh, we... <laughs> youth there's a miss desjardins who is the school's pe teacher in carrie uh which is interesting yeah um but that desjardins is spelt without the s so just to clarify uh, they might not be related, but it's never been confirmed or denied that they aren't or they aren't. It could be like a a typo on, on King's part. Not saying it is, but sometimes writers get the continuity a bit mixed or up. Or it could just be like a I can't remember the word, but you know when it's slightly like a variation of the name. It's still the yeah. same family, yeah. but it's kind of yeah, she could diverged be, a yeah, bit. Yeah, very good point. So that's interesting. The Desjardins name has some history in Castle Rock, and I like the fact that they've brought another character in, like Pangborn, who has such a such a history in the town not as obviously a richer history as pangborn because wow that guy's got some yeah he's seen some things been about as we've said moving on to a pet cemetery reference obviously the digging up of graves uh moving the old rev yeah. and the eerie music that happened when he moved the coffin back to town are we going to be seeing a reincarnated uh reverend diva at any point <laughs> is he coming we have, back though a bit haven't we molly's been seeing him Molly has been seeing him. He's been popping up. And a very good point, Lucy. Gareth, do you think we're going to be seeing more Molly seeing the Reverend Diva? Because now his body's back in town. Are her feelings mm. going to be stronger? Mm. Yeah, that um, empathy bridge has just been... Uh, Extended. Just been... Yeah, it's just been <laughs> extended. No, it's, been, it's been fortified, hasn't it? It's yeah. um, looking a lot stronger. Um, yeah, we'll we'll see we'll see more flashbacks. We're not going to see an actual rein, reinvigorated version of him, are we? Imagine if he broke free and like started knocking on the door, like in Pet Cemetery. Oh, or I whatever. hate it. Yeah, it's just it's just Scary. disgusting. Um, but yeah, I I think that's a nice little nod and a good point to bring up with the coffin um, moving back into uh, Castle Rock. I think there is definitely chances that Molly's visions are going to get even stronger and really, really fuck her up. Mm -hmm. Molly, speaking of her, refers to the fact that a serial strangler died in my house. This is, of course, a reference to the Dead Zone and Frank Dodd, who we've referenced in previous King Corners as being the main protagonist of the Dead Zone, who Johnny Smith uh, outs as being the the strangler. Interesting, Lucy, that we find out that this 
happened in her house. We know that he committed suicide in the dead zone. So interesting that it's her house though. That's such a cool yeah. little reveal. And she's fine with that. And she, well, she's kind and of what, fine with as it. As you mentioned in previous episodes, I think Emma said about um, her sort of sharing Johnny Smith's powers. So it's another link to the dead zone. Oh, she's so linked to Johnny Smith here. Like Emma said, and like we've said, and you've said here, it's just that the character of Molly Strand and Johnny Smith just seems so linked. Every reference to the dead zone just mm. just really implicates her with She's some sort of She's almost like a cipher for him, isn't she? Yeah, she, there, there's a connection there, for sure. And I hope it gets uh, hope it gets revealed, or I hope they're, they're giving us little snippets to, to it, you know, as the season goes on, because I think that's really good. Mm. So we're coming on to a bit more of a tenuous link, but something that's been floating around on Reddit and... Um, a couple of discussion groups and articles is, you know, uh, the fact that the Crimson King, the Crimson King is essentially the big bad in the Stephen King multiverse. He is the, the sort of deity like creature responsible for wanting to destroy the dark tower. Yeah. The tower, uh, which essentially would destroy reality. So he, he, he is a big bad. He is the big bad. And, um, He's been mentioned in um, some novels in Derry, set in Derry, which is the same location as It, it of course. And that one is Insomnia, published in 1994. Um, so it was set in the same town as It. So we know that, that he's, he can meddle in these small town situations, although he is, like like we just said, like a demonic sort of being. who is. Why is he bothering with me? Well... Stay out of it. You know, It is also a... You know, the creature it is also a sort of semi-deity dimensional being mm. that feeds on children. So it's interesting that they meddle in these, these small town affairs. I kind of like it. I kind of like the fact that there's, there's obviously this... a gate for these well, beings. Yeah. New New England. New England is, is just full of lore and old creepy like wives tales and things. And um, yeah, but... I don't know. Interesting. Crimson King. That reminds me of True Detective as well with the Yellow King. The Yellow King. Yes, Gaz. Another good uh, True Detective little uh, nod there. But the, uh, the references to this are quite tiny. But the kid in his, um, you know, Apocalypse Revelation speech to uh, the Warden's number two character said uh, there's a, a, a dipped in a robe soaked in blood. Um, so that could be a reference to him. Also, the way that the Crimson King operates is he usually hires others, you know, other people or demonic beings to do his bidding, um, usually like turning slightly skewed minds mad. And it's interesting to note that Zalewski in this episode, uh, obviously his mind is slightly skewed as the episode goes on and he goes full on mad. I mean, that turn of character from him, as yeah. we said, Snap. was quite out of character, really. Like from what we'd seen of him. So maybe there was someone like the Crimson King at play here. You know, who knows? It's interesting. There's little links there, um, mm. subtle ones and that. And I mean, I think we we said all along that this is the Stephen King multiverse. Everything he's ever written is interconnected in this and world. could pop up at any time. And could pop up. So all of these little references, yes, they're a bit tenuous at times. Yes, they might be right. And yes, they might be wrong. But you know, the fact that we can look into these things is, is what makes the show really interesting. Yeah. As people who have seen the adaptations and read some of the books, it makes it such a more interesting and rich show to watch. And if anyone who has listened to any of these King Corners and has said, wow, that sounds really interesting, I implore you to go and read some more of the novels or mm. watch some more of the adaptations because so many people, like, 
just start reading some Steve, just you know dismiss Stephen King necessarily I do yeah I, I listened to a podcast recently about him and his influence and how he seen he is dismissed like in literary forms people because of the kind of stuff that he writes about he is dismissed he doesn't get as much respect as maybe he should um and yeah I would suggest my tip for readers that are a bit overwhelmed by looking at Shining or It is read the short stories because they are amazing. And I think I've read most of them. They're just in like a, a little book and there's some really, really creepy ones. I mean, Shawshank is a short story. The Body. Yeah. Apt Pupil is another one that and, was in there. And the thing about Stephen King as well to note is that, like we've said, the supernatural element isn't always at play. Things no. like The Body, things like Shawshank Redemption, they are grounded in reality. Um, and it's, and it, you know, as we said, they're set in this place where other crazy stuff does happen but not Mm. all of the stories involve supernatural elements so if you are interested in it please go check them out i think he gets a lot of criticism just because of the sheer volume of things that he's released as well like um sometimes that can work against you like if you um if you're making too much people assume people rightly or wrongly but they assume that the quality Mm. Um, is sacrificed yeah he um, apparently just writes all the time yeah if he thinks this book's not good he was like well the next one something good will come along yeah and i think if him if he could like team up with george rr martin oh my god and get george to finish the next game of thrones uh installment of song of ice and fire we'd be very happy people but yeah Mm. check out any stephen king when you can watch the adaptations i think this this show should inspire lots of people to do that Mm. We've got a couple of little nuggets, we're going to call them now. Yeah. Um, last week, you were t- I think it was John brought up um, similarities between the horrific court scene with the kids in the mask and Lord of the Flies. Yeah. Did you know that Stephen King got the name of the town, Castle Rock, from the fort that they have in Lord of the Flies? It's called Castle Rock. Did he? Yeah, that's where he got it from. Well, there you go. So uh, that's a little good little nugget. Any more nuggets? Um, yeah, I was thinking of when I was watching it, the first couple of episodes... Well, the mention of the devil, there is a short story um, in the book Everything's Eventual called The Man in the Black Suit about a boy um, whose who's brother dies of a bee sting and he goes, he's out in the forest and he meets this man in a black suit with like shark teeth and burning eyes who he realises is the devil and he manages to escape. But it's just that this thought of like in the main woods the devil is lurking, it kind of made me think of... Yeah. The fact that Lacey believes the same thing. Basically. Yeah, yeah. And as we said, that you know, the Crimson King, yeah. he's meddled in, in small town Maine before mm. and he is essentially a devil-like character. So, And also he he tells the boy, he says basically, like, your mum's dead. Like, you'll get home. She's had an aneurysm. Like, your dad's going to molest you because your mum's gone. And it says all this horrible, like, premonition-y stuff. But he gets home and it, and that is not the case. But that kind of feeds into maybe the kid projecting yeah. certain things on sowing people. seeds of doubt making people See question things. question their character mm. like we said you know question reality Zalewski just going off the rails rest in peace Zalewski we yeah. are sorry we're sorry it didn't happen for you you've nailed his name now that he's gone yeah now well, you never have to say it again well you know it's 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 my way of honoring him Gareth <laughs> and that was King Corner <laughs> So that's it for another episode. Uh, I want to say thanks to everyone for listening and thanks for the great support over these uh, first week or so. The show's only been out a week and we've had a great reaction on social media and a great reaction um, from listeners. Mm. So I want to say thanks to everyone for listening to us. Um, It's been a lot of fun. I think this show has got so much room to grow and I think it's going from 
you know, strength to strength, I think is building an excellent first season. Uh, if you have enjoyed this, please do subscribe to us. Um, it makes life easy. You just get the episodes downloaded on whatever platform you're listening on. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, any podcast app. If you want to hear about some of uh, Marvel films or, you know, maybe some Star Wars content or anything like that, big event movies, basically, and any other piece of content that we've ever made, our parent podcast is called Fan Critical. It's also on any podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, you know the jazz. If you want to watch Westworld, or if you have just started watching Westworld, or you want some Westworld podcast coverage, our Westworld podcast is called The Hosts of Westworld, and that is also on any podcast app, Spotify or Stitcher. And finally, I want to say thank you to Gareth for this week. Thanks, mate. It's been good. I want to say thanks to Lucy. Thank you. Uh, And I've been your host, Len. And uh, let's hope that episode five uh, continues this excellent, um, the excellent amount of shocks that are happening in this show, because I think this show, more than anything I've watched recently, has kept me on my toes. And I like a show that subverts my expectations. And I hope you're all enjoying it as well. So see you guys next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.